with me to Psalm 41. And you may be saying in this moment, but wait a minute, what happened to Psalm 40? Well, if you were here last November 26, you would have heard it then. <laughs> uh, Pastor John and I had talked about uh, this summer, planning and the like, and he uh, he said, well, we need a dry run. So last November was a dry run. Uh, for me, I think mainly to kind of get the sense of how you do things around here and introduce me to the congregation since I would be uh, the face of the summertime during his sabbatical. And uh, at the time I was swirling around uh, these uh, uh, Psalms in the 40s, and I preached on Psalm 40 then. So if they're recorded and you feel as though you need to have the, uh, this one in, in the hopper, you can look that up and listen to it. If not, then you missed it. Anyway, Psalm 41 uh, is unique because it brings us, uh, it brings the first collection of psalms to a conclusion. Uh, the Psalter is divided up, up into five books, and uh, many believe it was they were divided that way to be kind of be structured in a similar way as the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're not uh, in any way follow the themes of those books necessarily, but they, uh, uh, they are five nevertheless. <clears throat> and we come now in Psalm 41 to the last, and next week we will consider the first of the second book. Um, another interesting thing about Psalm 41 is that it ends, uh, the psalm begins with a benediction. Uh, blessed, let me find my way here. Uh, blessed is the one who considers the poor. The psalm, this book of the psalm also begins with a benediction. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. So the book ends of book one of the Psalter are two psalms that contain benedictions. And there appears to be a purpose or a design in that, for these indeed are blessed psalms. Another thing that's interesting to keep in mind, and we'll say a little bit more about this next week, book one and contains or contains Psalms 1 through 41 is a Davidic collection almost exclusively. In fact, there are only four Psalms that have no authorship attributed to them. Those are Psalm 1 and 2, 10 and 33. And in all likelihood, they were Davidic anyway. So let's say, I think it's safe to say, that book one is the first Davidic collection of psalms. That is important. They 
embody Israel's devotion during her golden age of the united monarchy. And we see in there, there is both weal and woe, bane and blessing in the life of her king. The king, i.e. David, and his line, is represented as faithful but flawed. Enemies abound in this Davidic collection. They are seem to be ubiquitous and everywhere to be found. The enemies abound as David fights for his people. To be sure, what comes out clearly, and in no uncertain terms, Yahweh, the Lord, is the true king whose designs can never be thwarted. And thus, this collection is particularly encouraging in that regard. But David, with all of his faults, nevertheless exemplifies in an imperfect way a yet future and righteous king who will defeat and conquer all our enemies, all his and our enemies, much as David is trying to do on a very regional, smaller scale throughout his reign as king. It pictures David's greater son, who we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ, Verse 13 is a doxology that concludes the entire book and really is not part of the psalm itself. And so when we think about verse 13, we ought to think about it not as part of Psalm 41, but the conclusion to all 41 psalms. And it concludes this book in a way that is quite similar to the way all the other four books of psalms are are concluded. Psalm 41 is messianic at least in part if not in whole. Though born of David's royal experience it is used by the Lord Jesus as referring to himself in verse 13, or verse, we'll come back to that. John 13, 18, he quotes it as referring to the betrayal of himself by Judas. And so the psalm accomplishes the following. And our outline follows roughly this. It pronounces blessing on those, uh, on those who as merciful or they consider the poor. Blessed are those who consider the poor. It presumes, secondly, trouble for those who strive for faithfulness in their life. And this is a theme that almost can become tiresome 
because it's repeated so many times, but it is life as lived in this fallen world, and we are part of that, and so it addresses it from so many different angles. And finally, as it concludes, it really concludes the whole of the first book by promising victory for those who trust the true king. As always, we must remember, these all point to him who will reign over the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in that sense, Psalm 41, uh, uh, Psalm 41 pictures the gospel. It pictures the gospel because it once again sets forth the true king who will never fail us. That king who is a merciful king, who was rejected by those to whom he came, and yet remained triumphant for our sakes and the glory of his name. The king who would be righteous but was not pictures the king who was righteous but scorned. And in so doing, many were made or declared righteous in his name. As Andrew Boner would say, in short, the psalm concerns the righteous unpitied in his time of need. And with that, it takes us into the common human experience. So in your bulletin, I've given you this outline for you to uh, take notes, should that be your custom, a blessing pronounced, a trial presumed, and a triumph promised. And let us proceed now at looking at the psalm in that light. I'll read, if you will follow along. To the choir master, a psalm of David, blessed is the one who considers the poor, and the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Do You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say to me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friends in whom I have trusted, who ate bread, ate my bread and lifted his heel, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. 
My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my in- integrity and you and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, seal these words to our hearts. May what follows the insights and comments elucidate your word rightly and uh, acceptably. We pray, Lord, for the glory, your glory, to shine forth in the face of our Savior Jesus from the words of this text. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin with a blessing pronounced. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, regards these words particularly is a word for uh, poor, meaning weak and helpless. Uh, he regards it, and others do as well, as not so much the poverty or financial poor as the powerless poor, much the same as what is repeated timely, time again in Scripture, the fatherless and the widow those who are without place and standing in the larger order of the world, God has a particular concern for them. And yes, he certainly has a concern for the poor because often the fatherless and the widow and their children and likewise are among those who have little resources as well as little standing. These are the ones the church should give primary interest to, thus a deacon's offering that is taken. And that should be considered a, a priority in the life of the congregation, to have a, have a uh, benevolence ministry and to feature the very ones that are thought of here. Why? Because blessing comes for those who consider the poor. Those without voice, marginal, forgotten. Psalm 9.18 says directly, The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. God in his providence will care for his own, but it's also God also uses the life of his people and the blessings of his church to come alongside those who are facing difficulty. The blessings concerned here are blessings of divine protection that are mentioned, public reputation, but does not include, these blessings do not include the absence of trouble. David mentions, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects and keeps him alive. He, called, he is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of the enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. And in his illness, you restore him to full health. These may not be absolute universal blessings, but they are blessings that many of us can count 
I'm also mindful of the fact that in the Beatitudes begins with the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones does a wonderful job opening up that as recognizing that we are all poor in spirit because we, before the Lord, we are poverty-stricken with regard to any resources that would advance our standing. In other words, we are sinners in God's sight, and we need not just his help, we need his absolute power and strength. We need him as our Savior. And so the poor has this broad meaning, and let us not forget the fact that we are all poor and we are all in need of the gifts of grace, the, the steadfast love of the Lord, as is repeated in the Psalms. Matthew 25 says this, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty or give you drink? As you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me, says Jesus. To serve the poor is to serve Jesus, pure and simple. In Israel, this duty was particularly incumbent upon the king. So David felt it keenly. But it would only be fully exemplified by him who invited the weary and the burdened to rest in him because his yoke alone is easy and his burden alone is light. In other words, Jesus was the supreme exemplar of this mercy of which the psalm is really pronouncing. Blessed are the merciful And together with Psalm 37, which speaks much of meekness, Jesus was the great exemplar of both meekness and mercy. And we see this spelled out in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek who will inherit the earth. And Jesus embodies both of these. And in that sense, this blessing of mercy sets our minds and our hearts on the pathway of considering the Lord Jesus. And like Jesus, we may face difficult days, as he did, and yet confident that the Lord's, in the Lord's deliverance, his protection, and his gracious keeping because we are his people. David, even at this point, understands that his enemies will never ultimately triumph over him. As Michael Wilcock has said, the one who brings mercy down from heaven is the one who is raised from from death by the mercy of God. 
And let us not forget that wonderful statement from William Shakespeare in Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained, he says. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It's twice, it is twice blessed. It blesseth him who gives and him who takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of his power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and the fear of kings. But mercy is above this scepter sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And the earthly power doth then show likest God when mercy seasons justice. Blessed are those who are merciful. Even when trial is presumed, and that's the one thing that you can count on, whether they say death and taxes, I can, you can also add to that a trio pers- difficulty. Life is difficult, hardship, trial. And that's why David prays in verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. And like last week, he recognizes that the trial that he's facing is of his own making because of his own sinful heart. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And if this sounds like a drone that gets tiresome after a while, get used to it, because the gospel, as it pummels us day after day, week after week, year after year, reminds us how we need a Savior. And without recognizing that we too have sinned, Jesus will mean very little to us. We note that bane and blessing will often go together. Blessing here is followed by the bane of life. The prayer for for God's grace begins with a prayer acknowledging the need for God's grace. And that is sin. These verses begin with sin and are followed by its consequences and then its remedy. And that's the pathway of the gospel story. The consequences of sin may include, as in David's case, both illness, but not always, as we mentioned last week, illness in and of itself is not necessarily a result of one particular sin, although it is always a result of a fallen world. It may be result in both illness and abandonment as here. David appears to be friendless as he, as he writes this psalm and prays before the Lord. And David, in effect, is acknowledging at least these three things in these verses 4 through 9. First of all, says, I'm sick. His illness and his sin, his sin in this particular case, appears 
to go hand in hand. This was acknowledged in Psalm 38, verse 3, which we considered a couple weeks ago. There is no soundness in my flesh, David said, because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. We don't know what that sin is. We don't know what that illness was. But there was a connection, as David saw it, in his own life. And thus he prays, heal me, for I have sinned. David also confesses, I am guilty. And again, we see this repetitive theme throughout these verses of David's confession before the Lord. We read one of them this morning. Psalm 51 is the classic text of confession. And there's only one remedy David recognizes for him. And that remedy is a broken and contrite heart before the Lord and casting himself upon his steadfast love, which is the gospel. In Psalm 38, 18, which we considered a couple of weeks ago, he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. The utter regularity in which confession is inserted in these songs of worship is one of the reasons why we must, with regularity, insert the confession of sin into the song of the church the regular lifting up of our hearts and praise to him. At least once a week, we ought to be setting things right as a body of believers. Not to mention the regularity as a habit in our lives before the Lord. Is this a negative thing? No. It's an acknowledgement of truth. And it's once again fleeing and delighting in the very promise of hope that is offered to us in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus. And then David recognizes the consequences even of of this forgiven sin. Some years ago, I heard one of our PCA teaching elders at a General Assembly meeting preach on that that very theme, the consequences of forgiven sin. Sin is always forgiven. Its consequences often tail on with us for a time longer than we would deserve and desire, I should say. David finds himself betrayed. I am betrayed by friend and foe alike. His enemies seem to joyfully await his demise. Verse 5 says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he utters empty words. They're all like friends of Job, who really are not the blessing that they thought they were, but a bane to his life. You must have done something wrong, Job. They utter empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, and he goes about to tell it abroad. Gossip. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again 
where he lies. I mean, oh, we all love to have positive people around us, don't we? Well, these aren't them. These aren't them. His friends join in chorus in verses 7 through 9. They hate me, whisper together. And then verse 9, even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. These are dark days. Perhaps David is recalling the abandonment by his own son, Absalom, and his trusted counselor, counselor Ahithophel, who are the two classic uh, friends who turned and betrayed David. Perhaps he, he even has in mind Shimei, who shouted curses as he was shamefully leaving uh, Jerusalem behind him, fleeing for his life. But even more so, these very words picture the experience of betrayal by Judas of the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus recognizes this in John thirteen eighteen when he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So at least in so far as Jesus fulfills scripture with these words, this psalm is messianic. Eugene Peterson has written a wonderful little devotional commentary on the life of David called Leap Over the Wall. I'm greatly encouraged with the way of his reading of the life of David. Eugene Peterson says, My primary, the primary story of our storytelling scripture isn't David, but Jesus. Jesus is the pivotal story in God's revelation. The story that gathers all the other stories into its orbit, establishes the center, and provides the comprehensive coherence. The David story anticipates the Jesus story. The Jesus story presupposes the David story. And without reading scripture through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of him who would rule over his father's throne, the scriptures are utterly unintelligible and they become nothing for, but a program of self-improvement in which psychological wor- language works just fine. Without Jesus, the Bible is a closed book, pure and simple. The Lord said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. But David doesn't end there. He doesn't end the psalm there, and he doesn't end the book there. He ends, he ends book one where it needs to end. By sweeping up the grand themes of grace and applying them once again to his own life and to those who pray this prayer with him. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. In a moment, a comment on that verse. But I will say, David can also rightly pray, I am forgiven. Not only forgive me, but I am forgiven. And therefore, despite his sin, all is right before his God, whose steadfast love once again prevails. So David prays a second time for God's grace. First time in verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. Now again he prays, be gracious to me. This time claiming the covenant promise of the Lord, that he will be faithful to his promise to forgive. His enemies cursed him, as we read in verse 8. He will not rise again. But David is confident of otherwise. David is confident in the gospel. The Lord will raise me up. As a king, he adds this statement which kind of troubles some people, that I may repay them. No, David is not looking for a vindictive stance or taking revenge. He is praying in this in this regard, as the king that he is. Just as Jesus could pray this prayer as the king that he is, who will set all things right by de- defeating and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's, that was David's role as a king, to bring justice to the world. And those who mock God, who, who uh, dismissed his rightful the, the rightful throne of the Lord were ones who were under the judgment of God. And David rightfully prays that he would be, God would bring through him the recompense to those who opposed him and God's purposes. On the other hand, as we continue to read these latter parts, this much is promised divine light, glorious triumph, heavenly approval, and the eternal presence of the Lord. He says in verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity, my innocence in the causes to which they've turned against me and set set me in your presence forever. So much bound up in that very last phrase, your presence forever. Psalm 16 would remind us, in your presence is fullness of joy. And here it is underscored that this presence 
is an eternal joy, an eternal presence. The New Testament opens up the very truth that this presence is living in the very presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Was this true of David? Well, yes, it was. But how much more is it true of the Lord Jesus himself? You may say that Jesus never sinned, and that is correct. But he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that, in, the essence, in essence, is the gospel. Now, the whole book, the 41 Psalms, ends with this promise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The psalm begins with a benediction and it ends with a benediction. The psalm, the, the book begins with a benediction in Psalm 1 and ends with a double benediction. The book ends with a blessing. It's a double amen. And think how important that is in the Gospels in particular. As Jesus spoke truth, he would begin that truth with words, these words, verily, verily, I say unto you. And in the Greek, that is simply amen and amen. And whenever Jesus used the double amen, it was as though he would say, listen to this because what I'm about to say is really important. And these psalms are important in our lives, in the lives of the church, in the worship of the people of God because they massage into our lives the great themes that that bring the gospel into our lives that help us understand intuitively of its truthfulness and the nature of God and the nature of the human soul. So saying amen and amen and should greatly encourage us by these prayers of praise, of tears, of hope, of truth. When John Blair the porter on the St. Paul and Duluth Railroad during the Great Hinckley Fire, who behaved exemplary and courageously, was asked how he remained so calm when others were so panicked. He said, I just resolved that I would not lose my head. And if I had to die, he says... I would just do it without making a fool of myself. I don't know the state of John Blair's heart, but he sounds like a believer in Jesus because that's what a believer in Jesus would say. And given his race and the times in the late 19th century, in all likelihood he was speaking as a Christian. But we all want to die without making fools of ourselves. And in Christ, we can do just that. In fact, it can be something, something for which we long and look forward to. Michael Wilcock, in one of his insights, 
It said that we might think of the Psalms as a photograph album, full of pictures that show us a variety of places in a land of spiritual experiences. Calvin, of course, has said that it's the anatomy of all parts of the soul, by which he meant that the full range of human experience and emotion are bound up in the pages of this hymnal of the church. And it is like a photo album, a place in which we can picture common spiritual experiences that are given shape and understanding in the words of divine revelation in light of the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus. And let our hearts rest there. Our Heavenly Father, as we ponder the conclusion of this this wonderful book of the Psalter that is so filled with such a variety of themes and both difficult and wonderful, uh, both challenging and uh, exalting and illuminating. We pray, Lord, that you would shape our lives by these precious gems. And may they always serve to beat a path to the hill called Calvary, upon which our Lord, the Son of David, suffered and bled and died in our behalf and yet rose triumphantly for our justification. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.